Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In 1989, Mac McCann co-founded the band Super Chunk. Super Chunk was abrasive and vulnerable. Guitars dominated their sound, with Mac's voice sitting low in the mix. The band caught on and got huge. So huge, they helped coin the Gen X term slacker with their 1990 hit Slack Mother. Well, we can't say the whole title on NPR, but I think you know where that's going. To release Super Chunk's albums, Mac and his bandmates started their own label, Merge Records. Merge quickly became more than just a run-of-the-mill indie label. Over its 30-plus years of existence, Merge released albums like Neutral Milk Hotels in the Airplane Over the Sea, Spoons Kill the Moonlight, and Funeral, a breakthrough debut by Arcade Fire. Mac is also a solo artist. He's released a handful of albums and EPs under his own name in a broad range of genres. He's made everything from folk rock to ambient music. His latest record is called The Sound of Yourself. It's pop music that caught the ear of our friend Jordan Morris. Along with doing bullseye interviews, Jordan's also a comedy writer and the co-host of one of my other podcasts, Jordan Jesse Go. Anyway, let's kick off their conversation with a song from Mac's new album. This is Dawn Bangs. Mac McCann, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you. So, Mac, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the music you were listening to when you were growing up. What kind of music was playing around your house and, you know, in the family car uh, when you were a kid? I grew up in South Florida until I was 13 years old. We moved to North Carolina. And growing up in the car, there was usually rock radio playing, either Top 40 or I guess what at the time was an album album rock radio. At home, we were usually listening to my dad's records, and my dad didn't have a large record collection, but he had some really good records. And um, I would say the Rolling Stones, Stevie Wonder, um, Led Zeppelin, Elton John, those were all those were all quite popular. And, and uh, my dad also loved any any rock band that had a horn section, so Chicago, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's what we listen to. Um, that's what we listen to a lot at home. 
Super Chunks had some had some brass over the years. Did your dad enjoy that edition? Oh, I'm sure that he did. I think that the first time we had a horn section on a Super Chunk record was 1998, uh, Come Pick Me Up, which we were lucky, lucky enough to record at Steve Albini's studio, Electrical Recording and um, Electrical Audio in uh, Chicago. that record with Jim O'Rourke and um, one of the reasons that we wanted to work with Jim is because he's such a great uh, writer of string arrangements and horn arrangements and we also happen to be friends with some musicians in Chicago Ken Vandermark and uh, Jeb Bishop and Bob Weston all played horns on that on that record and they're especially Ken and Jeb were known at the time were still known for their activity in the kind of free jazz world. And um, so it was really awesome to have them on a, on a super chunk record. Do you have an explanation for like how to make your punk band age well? I mean, it's such a good question and I actually have thought about it a lot and am constantly assessing what I'm doing and what super chunk is doing from the point of view of like, okay, if I was a fan of this band for like 30 years and this, I heard this song, would I be like, Oh dude, like that is okay. I love your old records, but I, I hate this new song. <laughs> I think about that and, and just try to avoid doing whatever that would be that would cause that feeling. So I don't know. Like, I, I mean, you can't say to someone like, look, just take eight years off. Think about what you're doing. <laughs> reassess what you really get out of it and make like a couple the solo that you albums. love yeah. make a couple solo albums you know so i don't have great advice except for the fact that i think one of the things that um happened when we stopped making a record like every two years was that when we came back to make records we again we could just go like you know we're gonna make this record we're not going to be on tour for six months out of the year like we used to be. And so like what would be a super fun record to make and a super fun record to play live after we make it? Because those shows are going to be, there's not going to be that many of those shows. So they should be really fun, not stressful shows to play, you know, like let's not make a record where it's like, Oh, in order to recreate this, we have to have, a keyboard player and a string section, you know, in order for it to like make sense. No, like let's just like make a punk record that is going to be fun to play live. And that's how we started with Majesty Shredding.
And when we made I Hate Music, I think we had learned a lot and we learned that that worked. But at the same time, that record is about like the death of a friend. So um, the mood is different. It's not going to always be like a joyous, I love rock and roll kind of thing. But at the same time, you know, I think we'd figured out how to do it. And then, you know, here's to shutting up. The last album is just more like rage driven, which is kind of exhausting, but kind of a can be a good place to make a record from and 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 to play live. So, but I think it was really just about like again, like looking for like what do we love about doing this? Let's do that. It's not advice that can work for everyone because we're had the luxury of being in a place where no one was even expecting us to make a record. So when there's no pressure on you like that, you can just do the thing that's fun for you and then put it out um, because there's no expectations, you know, and there's no, uh, our label, which is also us, was not saying like, we need this at this time and now you got to make another one and do that. Like, you know, it was literally like a no pressure situation, which is always the best position to make music from, I think, you know, um, I mean, there's pressure on you from yourself to make it great. And there's pressure on you from yourself because you don't want to disappoint fans that have been listening to your records for that long, you know, but when there's no, you know, commercial pressure and there's no, like, you guys got to go on tour quick, you know, like that is a luxurious place to, to operate from. We've got even more with Mac McCon still to come after the break What makes a good saxophone solo on a pop record? Mac has the key. Find out more after the break. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, with no limit on how much you can earn. It's amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So, when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash match. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guest is Mac McCann. He's the singer and founder of the bands Superchunk and Portostatic. He also co-founded and runs the indie record label Merge Records. He's got a new solo album out. It's called The Sound of Yourself. Mac is talking with Jordan Morris, comedy writer and co-host of the podcast Jordan Jesse Go. Let's get back into their conversation. We are here uh, talking about your new solo record, uh, The Sound of Yourself. Um it's not your first one. You've you've made solo records in the past, and you've uh, had kind of non-super chunk bands that you're a part of. I'm curious what makes the songs on this record different from the songs on a super chunk record. I've been thinking about this, and I, and I'm pretty sure that you know, with the exception of "Here's to Shutting Up," where we were all kind of in in a garage and playing different instruments, sometimes keyboards and things like that. Super chunk songs are almost always written on a guitar, whether it's an acoustic guitar or an electric guitar. And the fun thing about making the sound of yourself, I kind of went into it with the idea of like, these songs can come from anywhere and be built from any kind of parts. In other words, one song could be, 
the inspiration for a song could just be like, okay, I'm making a a, a drum beat in in a Oberheim drum machine, which is the same drum machine that New Order used. So I like that one. And I'm just going to like make a beat that I like and then come up with a bass line to go with that drum machine and then just go from there. Like a Super Chunk song would never start like that. There's songs on here that came from very random like samples that I found in like an old sampler of mine that was like a sample of a live recording. I think of myself playing with Mary Lattimore and so I like took that sample and edited it into a, a somewhat rhythmic basis for a song and then just piled things on top of it, including a new Mary Lattimore track that she recorded. So the songs were kind of coming from all over the place, and a lot of it was inspired by what I was listening to a lot during lockdown. This record was recorded in a month in January of 2021, so lockdown was still kind of in effect, pre-vaccine, still staying home. And what I found that my brain was like wanting to hear during the time when we were all kind of staying home was a lot of ambient music and kind of more spacey instrumental music, music like Mary Lattimore's records, for instance, Caitlin Aurelia Smith, just these things that it wasn't really the type of music that I was used to making, but it's what I wanted to hear. And so I think the the record reflects a lot of that. And in the same way that kind of early Portostatic Records, which was the side project that I started outside Superchunk in the kind of early 90s, it was very much an anything goes kind of approach to each song and trying to just take advantage of the fact that, again, like no one's expecting anything. This can be anything. I'm sitting here at home in my basement studio And why don't I just take advantage of that fact that I have this basement studio and that I have this time for the first eight months of the pandemic, I couldn't write a song. I mean, I I think a lot of people probably experienced this, Mm -hmm. like that's just not where my brain could go. But then once I started, I was like, Oh, well, like I can start doing this and I have the time because where else am I going to go? What else am I going to do other than, you know, walk the dog make banana muffins, drive my family crazy, <laughs> be down here, <laughs> make some songs. And I was, um, I was inspired by a couple of things. One is that, you know, uh, watch this Brian Eno documentary and he's his music and his kind of writing about music has always been an inspiration, but he, um, of course, one of his things is about accidents and just letting things happen. And, and so I was trying to kind of keep that in mind and leave things trying not to like make things conform to what my instinct is, which is to kind of tie things up in a nice, like there's a nice song or whatever, you know, the album title itself comes from listening to um, Amy Rigby's audio book for the book that she wrote called girl to city, which is a great, it's a great memoir about moving to New York in the late seventies and starting bands and starting clubs. And um, she talks about that, terrifying moment the first time you hear your your voice coming out of a speaker whether it's like a monitor on stage or like a speaker in a studio or something like a monitor in a studio you're just like oh my god like that's what my voice sounds like (laughs) you know because you're just used to whatever sitting around playing songs with your friends in a room you know i think that most people have that experience the first time they hear their voice on like a tape recorder or something they're just like what (laughs) i mean like if i listen to this interview 
I mean, I still have that feeling of just like, oh my God, I, my voice sounds like that. But <laughs> at a certain point, you know, you think you're making records for more than 30 years, like you just like accept that's how you sound. But it's still a thing to think about. So, you know, that's what the title track is kind of about. And, uh, and you know, when you're, when you can't go outside your house very much or see other people, like, you know, even more so you're, you're stuck with your own voice, whether it's your literal voice or just like the voice in your head, you know. There's a lot of uh, different sounds on the record, like definitely sounds that you don't normally hear in a rock and roll record. And I want to talk about like how you picked the sounds. And I want to start by talking about one in particular. Around two minutes and 30 seconds uh, into the song, Burn a Fax, this saxophone kicks in. Mm-hmm. And, and Does it ever. Uh, it kicks in, and it is so delightful when it kicks in, because you don't see it coming. And it is smooth. Oh, it's smooth. I want to talk specifically about that sax, how you decided on it, and then, you know, just like any other sounds you brought into the album that were kind of, you know, not something you would usually put onto a rock record. Sure. Well, you know, we were talking about things that we listened to during the pandemic, and and jazz is another one of those things that I I normally listen to uh, a lot anyway, and. Um, you know, having a lot of time not being able to leave the house, but having the internet and being able to buy records online was like dangerous uh, thing to have access to and also a great thing. So I bought a lot of uh, ambient records. I bought a lot of jazz records. And when I was making that song, again, that song was built up from basically the synthesizer bass line that starts the, that starts the song. baseline kind of goes through the whole thing along with this pretty simple like drum machine and um, as I was kind of building up the song I did the vocals I did like uh, some other synthesizers playing along I did like a little piano thing and then I just felt like okay the song kind of like that has like a cool kind of stasis to it but it needs something else to happen and one of the last tours we did before everything shut down was we did a uh a tour for Acoustic Foolish, which was an acoustic 
re-recording of our Foolish album, the Super Chunk Foolish album from 1994. And um, Matt Douglas, who's also plays in the Mountain Goats, uh, played keyboards and sax with us on that tour. And um, I know what a powerhouse he is. Uh, and so I thought, you know, this song needs Matt Douglas on saxophone. And so I sent him the track and, you know, I think that the internet in general is probably like a net negative for the world, but um, for this <laughs> yeah, record, I can get it behind was a, that theory. I can for get this, that. for this record, it was a net positive because I could get these amazing people to play on my record without um, anyone having to leave their homes. So <clears throat> Matt sent me several solos and said, "You know, you can pick one." And of course, I I picked all of them, and they're all on there. Mm. And yeah, it's just it's beautiful. I mean, he has such a great tone and such a great instinct and kind of just knew what I wanted upon first hearing it. And, you know, I think one of the references I might've given him was, uh, Pharaoh Sanders eighties recordings where, you know, Pharaoh, I think still gets pretty far out there, but he also just has these beautiful, um, recordings, uh, that are, um, melodic and, um, kind of just flowing and, um, and so that's kind of what I was imagining when I sent that track to Matt, uh, and he sent it back and it's awesome. And then Mackenzie Scott from Torres sings the second verse on that song, which I think is also a great surprise when she comes in because her voice is so unique and so awesome, especially after you hear me singing the first verse and that song comes kind of later in the record. So you're like, all right, I've heard this, heard this guy singing for a while now. And then when Mackenzie comes in, you're like, yes somebody else <laughs> singing. Um, and then the saxophone comes in and it's, yeah, um, I, I love how that turned out. This album has, you know, kind of traditional two and a half, three minute pop rock songs, but it also, like you were saying, has a lot of instrumental music on it. And while you're listening to the album, just from front to back, it, it kind of alternates one to one almost, not exclusively, but like pretty much you're getting an instrumental track and then a, you know, more pop rock track with vocals. Um, yeah, I'd like to hear more about what you were thinking about when you were sequencing the album. Well, I mentioned Brian Eno, and um, I, I was reading an, an old interview with, with him where he was talking about um, uh, when he put out Another Green World. And that record is, I mean, it's one of my favorite records, but, you know, he was saying that, you know, there's only a few songs with vocals on this record, and, and more than half of it is instrumental, but people reviewed it like it was a pop record. And then he's like, I realized like, oh, as long as there's like a couple songs with singing, like people are going to think to review it like it's a pop record and I can kind of do whatever on the rest of it. And so I was thinking about that, you know, wanting it to still feel like a balanced record that you'd want to listen to, you know what I mean? But not worrying so much about like, oh, there has to be mostly... Uh, songs with vocals or you know i got to write lyrics or there has to be like some like rockers on there because just not that kind of record you know i think that it's i think there's maybe one more songs with vocals than songs without but i but i like the idea of a record that you can put on and and hopefully the the pacing of what it's going to be like is implied by the first song which is a pretty long instrumental mary Lattimore plays harp on it. My brother Matt plays uh, percussion on there.
and hopefully that first song being this kind of like long instrumental with like this drum machine like gives you the idea of like okay i'm just gonna settle in i was trying to make a record that had a pacing that was frankly like somewhat against my nature like it's it's what i like to listen to but then when i'm making a record i think i tend to feel like oh no people are getting bored right now you know what i mean like (laughs) it's been two minutes without singing you know it's like well you know, listen to what the singing sounds like. Maybe people are okay with another couple minutes without the singing. Hmm. But, you know, just trying to integrate the instrumental stuff into a, a pop record. Whereas in the past, I've made, you know, film scores, all instrumental. Um, I've made a couple records with Mary Lattimore now in the last couple of years that were these improvised albums for synthesizer and harp. And then I've made the the pop rock records with all the songs so trying to kind of combine those two things together in one album was what this ended up being i think i am kind of a a modern music listener in that i do a lot of listening to single songs and playlists and yeah once i kind of got a realized what was going on in the album i'm like oh i'm gonna listen to this front to back and i'm like oh i haven't really done that in a while i've not like just put on a record and listened to it front to back in a while. Um, it was an interesting experience, and it was definitely noteworthy because I realized I hadn't done it in a while. Um, hmm. Were you thinking at all about, you know, the modern listener's tendency to just make a bunch of playlists? I mean, I wasn't, though I know that that is the case. And, of course, if there's a song that... I mean, my I guess my feeling is, like, I still... Like, it would be so weird for me personally to make a record and then be like, I don't really care what order these songs are in because everyone's <laughs> going to listen to them separately anyway. Like, the sequencing is so much a part of it to me and um, also just fun to do, you know? Like, uh, I think about it a lot and uh, I think about when I'm listening to other people's records too. You know, the good thing is you can make a record that's intended to be listened to start to start to finish um in a certain order and people can do that like you chose to do you know like that to me is like the best way to listen to it but at the same time someone hears don benz and they go like i love that song i'm gonna put it on my playlist like that that's fine too like that doesn't stop anyone from listening to it the other way you know we'll finish up with mac mccann after the break it's bullseye for maximumfun.org and npr This message comes from NPR sponsor Odoo. Do you run a business or manage a team? Then it's time to switch to Odoo. Odoo is a suite of business applications designed to streamline, automate, and simplify any company. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, inventory, manufacturing, sales, accounting, you name it, Odoo's got you covered. So stop wasting time and start getting stuff done with Odoo. For a free trial, go to odoo.com slash bullseye. Hey, excuse me, everybody. I just uh, wanted to say a few words about the beautiful couple. I've known you two for a long time, and you get along like peanut butter and chocolate. Or, you know... (laughs) 
like like uh, comedy and culture, like uh, Maximum Fun podcasts. <laughs> Actually, they're having a block party from October 11th to October 22nd, and that's kind of like your party, right? You have a community of friends and family, and Max Fun has a community of shows and audiences that support them. You're having a new start with your life together, and Max Fun will be putting out new episodes that are especially welcoming to new audiences. So it's a great time to introduce your friends to your favorite show or jump into one you haven't tried before. Is he still talking about podcasts? And they're setting up a volunteer event where we can help out our local communities. Plus, Maximum Fun is going to have games, prizes, Episode Rex, so much other fun stuff. What's wrong with Kyle? Is he okay? Oh! (laughs) Anyways, anyways, sorry for getting carried away there. If it's all right with everybody here, let's all raise our glasses for a toast to the Max Fun Block Party, which you can learn more about at MaximumFun.org slash Block Party, and don't forget to join in on October 11th. Actually, that... That sounds pretty cool. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guest is singer-songwriter Mac McCann. He's being interviewed by Jordan Morris. Let's get back into their conversation. You'd mentioned uh, working on film scores. I wanted to hear about one in particular. You uh, did the score for uh, an Amy Poehler uh, Netflix comedy called Moxie. It is a teen, kind of a teen high school comedy. It has a lot mm-hmm. of like dramatic bits in it too, but you know, kind of at its core, sure. it's a, it's a like a high school comedy. Um, yeah, I'm so curious to hear about making that, and if at any point you kind of dug in and thought about like what makes a teen movie. Well, so I got asked to do the score for this film, Moxie, and I flew to. Los Angeles, I think it was probably like February 28th or something. It was in February of 2020. Right. I saw the first cut of the movie that I'd seen and had, we had meeting, uh, we had a meeting talking about the music with the editors and with Amy and Netflix people. And, and then I came home and then two weeks later it was like, everything shut down. So, but luckily I was like, wow, I like, I have this amazing project to work on. I can, I'm working on the score for this film. And so that's kind of what I did for the first four or five months of the lockdown was work on this film score. And, you know, I read the script first and I was like, oh, that's cool. And then, but when I saw the movie itself and the acting in the movie and the the way the jokes fell and everything, I was like, oh, wow, this is really good. And I know it's, it's geared towards teens. Yes. But, um, I think it's really sensitive and smart and funny and it's a comedy, but you know, like you said, like it's heavy, like there's heavy, there's heavy themes in there. And so, um, making a score for it was, was interesting trying to like hit all the, the right tones, you know, for the different, for the different parts of the film and stuff like that. Are we still mad at each other? You don't need to apologize. It's okay. 
I thought you were going to apologize to me. I think about film music all the time when I'm watching movies, and I feel like you usually notice film music if it's really great or if it's really not great. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I had an awesome time working on that. It would have been even cooler if there wasn't a pandemic going on because I would have gotten to go to LA and see the strings being recorded in a sound studio and that kind of stuff, you know, which I was looking forward to. But I was just glad to have something to be working on, especially because like I said, like I couldn't write a song on my own for to save my life. So, but it's just different, you know, picking up a guitar and trying to write a song than if someone's saying like, compose something for this scene where this thing happens, like that's a different part of my brain for whatever reason. And I could work on that. And it was it was great. And 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 like I said, you know, technology allowing me to um get Chris Stamey, who lives nearby, but I wasn't gonna go over to his house to record piano for for on the score. And Phil Cook recorded some electric piano and Michael Benjamin Lerner um from Telekinesis played drums on a song and you know, it was uh, my brother Matt played drums on a song that was all for for Moxie, and and it was stuff that we would have done in a studio, a proper studio, if we'd been able to. But we didn't have that option, so just trying to like figure out ways to make it work, and I think it came out great. One of the plot points is that a modern kid discovers her mom's old collection of like punk and riot girl stuff. Mm-hmm. It, I, I imagine that was kind of fun to work around because that's kind of the scene you came from. Um, do you think that was part of why you got the gig? I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I think that Amy knew that I was aware of all that context and and the music that was involved there. At the same time, you know, I was doing the score. And so in some ways, the music I was doing had to contrast with the music, you know, that that was happening for the characters in real life in the film, like, you know, like when a Bikini Kill song comes on in that movie, it's just so like, yes, like this rules, you know what I mean? And so like the stuff I was doing was like the contrast to that, you know, um, the band, that band, the Linda Lindas is in this movie. And that was the first time I'd ever heard them. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this band rules. Like what is the deal? What is the deal <laughs> with this band? They're, they're like band of LA teenagers who had a, a viral video playing in like a public library. The first time I saw them was like when I first saw the first cut of this movie and I was like, oh my gosh, is that a real band? Like they're incredible. It was really great working on it and 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 learning about them and and just um seeing how that kind of music still has so much power you know yeah you worked with uh amy poehler and a lot of other funny people on this movie um but yeah you and super chunk have worked with a lot of comedians in the past i think your drummer john worcester is kind of like a comedy legend in his own weird way he is he certainly is drumming and comedy legend is this something you kind of set out to do or is it something that just kind of happens because it happened in the past? I think that our kind of interaction with comedians is that it came about in the past because we were all fans of comedy and would talk about it in the van and listen to tapes in the van, you know, and then, uh, 
because of our age and the age of the comedians that were coming up when we were coming up as a band, you know, they were fans of music, we were fans of theirs. And that's how um, we ended up with, you know, David Cross and Janine Garofalo in our videos. And we got to play a show in Los Angeles for, it uh, was the, the premiere of a new season of Mr. Show when that was on HBO. Um, I don't know. I think that there was, especially, I mean, we're our East Coast, you know, and so I think that there was a lot of crossover between the rock and comedy worlds in the in the mid-90s because we were all just like fans of, of each other. There's some excellent video of Todd Berry playing drums with us. Um, oh, I didn't know uh, yeah, Todd Berry uh, played the drums. Uh, uh, <laughs> you didn't know Todd... That's the main thing people know about Todd Berry is that he plays the drums. <laughs> All right. Well, you should go you should go find that video. Maybe online. I'm just a fair weather Todd Berry fan. I guess but. so. I guess so. I have been talking to Mac McCann. He has a great new solo record called The Sound of Yourself. You can listen to the songs individually, but I recommend listening to the album front to back the way it was meant to be heard. Uh, <laughs> Mac, uh, thanks for hanging out with us on Bullseye. The way nature intended it. Thanks, Jordan. Mac McCann. His new album is called The Sound of Yourself. You can pick it up at your local record store or online. Our thanks to our correspondent, Jordan Morris. When he's not on the air, Jordan is also the author of the new graphic novel, Bubble, which is based on the podcast of the same name. Uh, It is super funny, and you can buy it wherever you buy books. Jordan Morris, Bubble. Great book. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where I celebrated getting my COVID vaccine booster shot by hanging a hammock chair on my porch. Just in the last moments of my strength today. (laughs) Just in time to collapse into it. Spend some time with Susan Orleans new. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the group The Go Team. Thanks very much to them and their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. Just got an enthusiastic endorsement for that theme music from my friend Brian Husky when I was on his show, Bald Talk. It's a bald people talk show. He loves the go team. You can also keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.